Thank you and good morning to you all. Let's just pray, shall we, as uh, we begin and open God's word together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Proverbs chapter 8 to begin this morning. Proverbs chapter 8, beginning at verse 32 through 36, as we uh, consider our theme this morning, Tales from the Front Line. Tales from the Front Line, and I think I was given this title because I've spent a little bit of time there. So Proverbs 8, beginning at verse 32 through 36. Now therefore, listen to me, my children, for blessed are those who keep my ways Hear instruction and be wise, and do not disdain it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. Uh, the writer, they're referring to wisdom. And wisdom, of course, uh, Christ being the embodiment uh, of wisdom, ultimately, as revealed to us in Scripture. All those who uh, hate me love death. Those who sin against me wrong their own souls. And as we look at the front line of the conflict today between uh, the Christian gospel and all that is happening in our uh, society... We see that actually what's developed around us is a culture of death. On all sides, we're actually told that we live in a tolerant society. And that the claims of the gospel, that the claims of Christ are intolerant. It's interesting to be on the receiving end of some of this uh, tolerance. About 18 months ago, I was having a quiet lunch uh, in, it seemed to be quiet initially, with a young Christian apologist. He was just starting out in uh, his ministry, and I was uh, meeting with him for lunch. He wanted some advice. And uh, we were in a very nice restaurant in the, the west of, side of Toronto, downtown Toronto, not far from Westminster Chapel, a very upscale uh, community in that part of the city. And we were about to order our food, when a well-turned-out man, but a total stranger to me, uh, gets up from his table, and he walks over to our table, and he begins to hurl profanity and abuse and obscenity at me for being a Christian, and by extension, uh, in his words, being a homophobic bigot, and uh, said that um, he, well, he didn't say, he shouted that he'd seen me on television and heard me on the radio and then he stormed out in a rage I mean this conference is called enraging the culture he literally stormed out in a rage cursing and swearing violently as he left the restaurant there wasn't any willingness to have discussion there was no debate there was no opportunity to respond all there was was the loud declamatory noise of tolerance and 
the, the, the stunned waitress, apart from the stunned waitress who came over and apologized, nobody else in the restaurant seemed to bat an eyelid, despite the fact that what that uh, gentleman did was a, an indictable offense under Section 175 of the Canada's Criminal Code. There's a growing atmosphere of uh, contempt and hostility towards uh, the gospel. I don't feel it quite as much, I, I, I grant, down here in Moscow uh, than I do in Toronto. Uh, there is a very big cultural difference. It's quite, my wife and I were talking about it yesterday, how marked the difference is being here than being in Toronto. It's palpable. It's, it's in the atmosphere itself. What's happened in a society, though, in the West, in Toronto, the city of churches, Toronto the good, it used to be called, the city of churches, how could it go from a situation where a pastor is a respected member of the community, an honored member of the community, to somebody who can be readily abused uh, in a public uh, place, and nobody thinks a great deal of it? Well, let's think about the formation of the front line uh, in this battle. Uh, how did we get here? Well, in recent history, the uh, major changes have come, uh, began at least in the 1960s. I haven't got time to talk about how we got to the 1960s, but the 1960s were a marked transition uh, period when efforts, earnest efforts were made uh, to begin to remove the Bible and prayer from schools in Canada and in the United States, striking at the vulnerable soul of the nation seated there in small chairs at little desks uh, around the country. In 1985, in the name of the Canadian Charter, the last vestiges of public Christianity were abolished in Ontario as the Lord's Prayer was banned as unconstitutional. And the result has been the steady moral neutering of two generations and what I'm going to call the casting adrift of the human personality. Casting adrift of the human personality. And it led to, and it's led to the absolutization, that is the um, turning into the ultimate principle, the feeling aspect of human experience. So that now in a very plastic world, I don't mean um, Tupperware, plastic, I mean, you know, in a malleable world, I feel, therefore, I am. I feel, therefore, uh, I am. It was under the influence of uh, European radicals like uh, Michel Foucault and Jean-Paul Sartre and then members of the Frankfurt School like Herbert Marcuse and others that we were basically told, and I think I said yesterday at some point this is where the, all the hippies went, this is how they were schooled, we were basically told that there is no essential self. The human person, the human family, are social constructs. They are socially constructed ideas. There's no, there's no essential, objective character, nature to the human person or the human family. These concepts have arisen simply socially and constructed uh, in history, historicism. We are only what we make and define ourselves to be, and in that kind of a cosmos, grammar has to go. So all of you kids here who uh, studied at Logos or at uh, New St. Andrews, who I didn't learn grammar at school. You could probably tell by the way I speak. Um, uh, I had to begin learning uh, grammar when I was uh, 
stumbling my way through New Testament Greek in seminary because the state schools in England had gotten rid of the teaching of grammar when I was in school. Correct pronouns have to go as well. Some of you may have heard of Jordan Peterson. Pronouns have to, the correct ones have to go because they all speak of laws and norms. Grammar speaks of laws and norms. Because man is an artifice, he's artificial. In such a world, those upholding God's law and God's norms for creation are initially a nuisance, and then they are eventually deplorable, evil. People to be removed and pushed out of the way. In this world of flux, then, when you turn to the word of God, and you read the very beginning of Scripture, the beginning of God's word revelation, we have uh, a incomparable starting point for thinking about an intelligible vision of the human person. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. It's familiar to us, but that, there, there is an unparalleled starting point in human thought right there that shaped our self-understanding in the West for generations. God, the God of Scripture, creates all things out of nothing, everything distinct from himself. He makes human beings in his image where the human eye or the human ego is established as a transcendent or distinct reference point for all the aspects of our experience. So, uh, you remember, some of you remember Descartes' uh, famous um, starting point for human knowledge, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore, I am. But of course, the question that uh, he was not self-aware enough to be asking was, who is the I? I mean, when I think, I feel, I act, I believe, who is I? Right, now, there is a distinction there. There is a kind of transcendence to the human person as we relate to our temporal experience. Place Pascal, brilliant French mathematician. Some good things do come out of France. And, um, and Christian apologist. He understood this mystery of the human person that man somehow transcends his environment. He's able to reflect on it, think about it. He's an integral being who's comprehensible only with reference back to God as the source of all life and law and truth and meaning. And so scripture begins with this distinction between creator and creation. And that implies a very necessary limit to the reach of human thought and also the prerogatives of man in terms of what he is able to legislate, what he's able to do. We read in Ecclesiastes, for example, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In other words, scripture says, because of the creator-creature distinction, there is a very real limit to human knowledge and certainly to the legislative prerogatives of human beings. 
But the average person today has completely lost sight of this. The true nature of man is lost sight of, and we have fallen prey in our culture to a spiritual nihilism, to a world of negation, of denial. Perhaps the uh, greatest philosopher that um, the Netherlands ever produced was a man named Herman Doyerverd, and he's put it this way regarding modern man. He says, he has lost all his faith and denies any higher ideals than the satisfaction of his desires. To him, God is dead. Modern mass man has lost himself and considers himself cast into a world that is meaningless. In the parlance of uh, popular culture, the uh, English singer-songwriter Sting, who I think lives in America now, he speaks about, he sings about the ailing uh, character of the human person and their existential rootlessness. He says this, you could see in one of his songs, you could say I lost my faith in science and progress. You could say I lost my belief in the holy church. You could say I lost my sense of direction. You could say all of this and worse. But if I ever lose my faith in you, there'd be nothing left for me to do. Now, you read a verse like that and disconnected from the context, you might think, oh, is he singing about God there? No, <clears throat> he's singing about <clears throat> the romantic ideal. The romantic ideal is that a romantic relationship will be the only source of security and meaning left in a world without foundations. That some kind of sexual relationship will be the only answer to finding some kind of security. And what this really means is that there's perhaps never been a time in the last 15 centuries when there has been a greater crisis of human identity in, in the Western world. That's where we're actually living right now. We are confronted with social and cultural ruin. That's how significant our cultural moment is. We are radically uprooted, dislocated, adrift in the world, and it's painfully obvious in the universities in Canada and in the United Kingdom where lines of young people queue to see the student medical health worker because of depression and suicide and loneliness and the crisis of identity. Well, let's think about some of the religious root of this conflict. Social cultural philosophers have spent a good deal of time trying to trace sort of back upstream to the fountainhead of the problems that we see in all these tributaries that are manifest in our culture right now. But not all of them actually recognize the religious root of the problem. Even many Christian commentators are looking for sociological, historical things that we think, well, maybe this change in legislation, maybe this political thing, maybe this action or that action can correct this. But actually, the decline of the human personality is due to apostasy of the heart from God. And what has emerged is the concept of mass man. And by that, I mean a depersonalized, dispensable human being. We live in a technocratic society where individuals strive to find themselves, to define themselves without God. The present situation uh, is 
very, very precarious. We read daily, and I meet people consistently, who are in the grip of a radical relativism unimaginable 25 years ago. You know, when we, when we say something is unthinkable, to my grandparents' generation, what is happening in our culture now literally would have been unthinkable. You couldn't have even thought about it. We have abstracted, generalized people reduced to self-created group identities because we no longer know what a human being is. This condition has advanced to such a degree that we are essentially unsure as a society if there are any human norms that transcend autonomous desire and our subjective self-identification. It's not simply that the last vestiges of pride or rootedness in our historical self-understanding are being eroded, it's that we are no longer actually confident ourselves of the intrinsic value of a human person, whether they are pre-born or newborn or disabled or aging or sick. Do you know that in Belgium they are euthanizing children now? There are people fleeing parts of Europe to Germany away from euthanasia laws. It's incredible. We're so fundamentally uprooted, we are no longer assured of the scientific chromosomal reality of binary gender distinctions of male and female and normative human sexuality and the oldest institution known to human beings, marriage and family. Our confusion is such that some people are not sure that they occupy the right age group or gender. We're born into the right people group were gestated by the right species since they feel like something else. Fairly recently, a married Toronto man in his 40s with seven children began claiming to be transsexual and was adopted by an elderly couple to live as a six-year-old girl. I'm not making it up. He was with, he's with an adoptive family living as a six-year-old girl. No one dare challenge these inner fictions since all that is left of the human personality is the notion that autonomous and subjective feeling has the absolute existence of God himself. And what this means is that there's actually no longer a basis in the minds of the non-believer out there for differentiation of any objective kind. It's a world of flux, a world of irrational fluidity. You've heard the expression gender fluid. The possibility of normative differentiation here between truth and falsehood, between right and wrong, between reality and unreality has collapsed. So I'm not suggesting this morning that we've reached a bump in the road as a culture. We've been sucked into a vortex of democratic insanity, which uh, is spiraling downward into what Cornelius Van Til called disintegration into the void. Disintegration into the void. In our disarticulated world, the vain rantings of Nietzsche's overmen who've gone beyond good and evil, they say that the reasonable and sane are sick, mad, or malevolent. You're the sick one. 
We're told we have a psychological condition. We're suffering from all kinds of phobias. And such people must be silenced in the face of the cultural conjurers reimagining the world. It was Francis Schaeffer who looked forward and saw the death of man as man, or the mannishness of man in our culture today, debunking, defacing the image of God. We have lost our soul. And there are many, even in the Christian church in the West, who do not realize it, that this is what's gone on. And they just trundle on their merry way. Life is normal in the church. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? When fractious people declare that what's left of human dignity is rooted in radical autonomy from God, from revelation, from family, from true human community, we have realized a radical depersonalization of all of life. And there's this illusion that we are more social than ever before because we can communicate with other, each other at such high speed. Uh, we have social media. And you go into, I often will enter a room where there is young people and they're texting each other across the room. Well, that's radically depersonalized. Well, you can't actually talk to somebody across the room. We have a society that whatever its protest to the contrary is anti-social to the core and yet ironically responsibility for our actions and their consequences are passed on to an impersonal scientific society governed by statistics and bureaucracy and fashion and technology and social planning and all these other impersonal forces. And people still think somehow that there is a technical solution to the problems of our society, a solely political solution perhaps to an essentially religious problem. There is no technical solution. There's no political solution to the radical religious problem of our social order. At the same time, there is fear on the front. There is fear on the front. People are not confident about these things. That's why they don't want to debate these things. They don't want to, de to discuss these things. The state of crisis that results from the illusion of the creative freedom of selfhood, taken off my watch in a meaningless exercise there. It's symbolic though. People are more often than not deeply inwardly afraid, even as they revel in the autonomy that has found increasing social indulgence and increasingly legal sanction. People are on every side, they're gripped by sadness, they're gripped by confusion, they're gripped by guilt, they have a sense of despair, of loneliness, they're confused. No amount of psychotropic prescriptions that are dished out like candy by doctors today can heal this problem. By such technique, the fear of disintegration and of death is just suppressed. To quote Doiverd again, he says, rightly, I think, 
It is uncomprehended revelation of God that fills humankind with fear and trembling. It's the uncomprehended revelation of God that fills humankind with fear and trembling. A few years back, I was debating an American atheist named Dan Barker at University of Windsor in Canada on whether there was life after death. And the interesting thing was, on the way to that debate, I had a car accident and uh, almost didn't make it. There was a huge snowstorm. Um, at, uh, one of the guys who was driving me came out, picked me up, took me there. I didn't have to get to where I was going in my car. And so when I got up, I said, uh, I had a car. I'm sorry I'm so late. I was about an hour late. But I'd had a, I've had a car accident on the way here, and I can tell you there is life after death. Um, but in his, in his frantic efforts to deny the possibility of accountability to God in the future, this just testified to the deep-rooted dread of God's righteousness, his suppression of God's revelation in his own life. He seemed unable to understand, much less, much less answer the challenge that was put to him, which was to make sense of his reasoning about truth and morality and history and meaning without the God to whom we are finally accountable. And when the question of evolution came up, as it usually does in these contexts, and I had the temerity to challenge it, there were some in the crowd in these academic debates who started jeering and heckling me. Because any notion that we are creatures made in the image of God uh, becomes the source of uncomfortable laughter today. And yet I'm amazed at the number of emails that have come in over the years from people who've attended one of these debates who were not Christians, but who have since become Christians, for whom that debate was the first critical step on their journey to discovering who they actually are. It's amazing that on the university campus as well, in many of the debates that I've been in over the years, how many professors, some of them with their PhDs from Princeton or Harvard, have concluded their argument with an absolute rant, a moral tirade against God and how immoral he is. And this is what Doiverd means when he talks about uncomprehended revelation from God filling people with fear and anger. We may deny that we are, get my good side, God's, we may deny God, and we may deny that man is God's image bearer, we can try to kill both God and man as man. We can press ahead on a suicidal course, but it always proves to be vanity because we're surrounded everywhere and at all times with the revelation of God that we are suppressing, and yet it still grips us. It still grips every non-believer. It produces guilt and deep disquiet, and so there is no recovery for our society until we recognize that whatever gains we may have made materially, we've lost our soul and Christ warns us that there is a reckoning God cannot be mocked. A man so reaps what he sows. Can't bargain with God to get our soul back as an individual or as a nation. We have to repent. Well, what solutions are on offer to this problem in our society? Because, of course, people do realize that there is a problem. Well, the solutions are solutions of mass destruction. 
Our culture looks to magical solutions to its problems. Because as one philosopher has put it, a philosopher has put it, the truth is so intolerable to fallen humanity that even when it does take hold of people, they still seek to escape its total claims in every possible way. So when there's a recognition that there is the problem, we don't look to the answer or for the answer in the person of Christ and his word. We cast about everywhere. It's intolerable. And this intolerance towards the truth takes many forms. And it goes by the name of tolerance, usually. From time to time, I'm actually invited to appear on um, uh, television or radio, although unlike the United States, Canada does not have a uh, conservative uh, media. Uh, it doesn't have that option. Okay? There used to be an option called uh, Sun News Television for a short time, which was more conservative. It's gone. It was basically regulated out of existence. Um, so there are very few opportunities for Christians like me uh, to be in the media in a place like uh, Canada. But from time to time, when they are looking for a sensationalist and intolerant participant in a, in a panel, panel discussion, uh, periodically our phone uh, rings. And I was recently asked to participate in a panel discussion on the decline of the church in the West. And there was a Roman Catholic next to me and a liberal Anglican, and an, an atheist minister of the United Church of Canada, uh, go figure that one out, um, who expressed her delight in the collapse of her own denomination numerically when I challenged her about it. I told her that the United Church of Canada was a real estate board, which it is. And she didn't deny it and rejoiced in the fact now, any talk of the church and society always turns presently to the question of sexuality. It's inescapable. So, the discussion turned to this subject towards the end of the show, and they were inviting comments from the audience. So, this was a live studio audience, and an elderly man is wheeled out in orchestrated fashion by the producers and brought forward to sit at the table with the panel in front of me to talk about his same-sex same partnership over the last 50 years and his gratitude for the Church of Canada, the United Church of Canada, walking with him in this uh, sexual sojourn, as he called it. And he asked me in front of the studio audience and in front of the television cameras whether his relationship was sinful. And you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. You could have heard a pin drop in that room. But before I could respond, someone on the panel, and these are churchmen, remember, decided to double down on the question. And they started asking me, not only is it sinful, but would I dare deny that this is wonderful and holy? Well, they really think they've got me on the ropes here. And they, they actually begin to use a religious language, you see, against God. Holiness, the new holiness. Well, when I affirmed in front of this man and the panel and the audience the truth of the gospel and scripture on human identity and sexuality, there were gasps of horror going all around the studio audience. And shakings of the head in self-righteous indignation. You can 
It's the Zuma report. You can find it online if you're interested. Christians actually have to recognize, you see, that the issue we are facing is a confrontation now of religious worldviews on the front line. It's no longer a, a sort of debate between broadly Christianized people having a few political, social, educational disputes about facts here and there, about technique here and there. It is a fundamental confrontation today between this radical neo-paganism, humanism, and actually increasingly in parts of Europe, Islam and the Christian faith. It's, it's, religious, it's a religious worldview because human beings are, according to scripture, worshipping beings. This is the true nature of man. What's the essence of a human being? We are worshipping creatures. We are worshippers. St. Paul actually makes this clear in chapter 1 of his letter to the Romans, where he says, if we refuse to worship the living creator God, we don't cease to worship. If we don't worship Christ, we don't therefore cease to worship. There are no non-believers in the world. There are only unbelievers. We will worship, but we will worship some aspect of creation itself. That's what Paul says. You worship the creator or the creature. Something, some being, some idea will be absolutized and put in the place of God. These are the isms that you find throughout human history and all human thought. Romanticism, existentialism, atheism, materialism, instrumentalism, and on and on. The isms take some part of created reality and they try and put it in the place of God and account for everything in terms of one aspect of reality. The Christian actually calls this something very simple, idolatry. Idolatry. And before a Christian renewal is possible in our culture, there has to be a self-conscious appreciation, appreciation from whence we have fallen. These weapons then of mass destruction take the form of very ancient beliefs that are dressed in a new outfit. And I believe we are in the grip today of God's historical judgments. You know, some Christians still speak as though they say, well, look at all that's happening. This could bring the judgment of God. <clears throat> no, this is the judgment of God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, that when you see this uh, false worship and its implications in social order, in culture, human sexuality, you are in the grip of God's historical judgments. The good news is when God judges something, he's sweeping it aside to replace it with something else. God's judgment is to be welcomed by Christians on our culture. Well, the anthropologists in the past called the beliefs that we're seeing dominating today manner beliefs. And these beliefs actually lay at the foundation of the disintegration and destruction of the human personality in pagan cultures. What these were, basically, was there is a supposed fluidity between the personal and the impersonal. Between the personal and the impersonal. It's a mysterious life force that underlies everything. Millions of people in our culture, very often unwittingly, are paying homage to this life force on the yoga mat, 
in their mindfulness meditation at the alternative healers in the science classroom where nature is deified materialism it's deified as an endless stream of life that spontaneously evolved from some original mysterious point of undifferentiated unity I know that's a mouthful but you get what I'm saying a mysterious point of undifferentiated unity Such was the belief that filled the ancient Greco-Roman world with dread in the face of what they called blind fate. In the face of blind fate, there was the emergence of the nobility of suicide. And increasingly, that's what we have in our culture today. Take your own life. Dignitas. If you want dignity, kill yourself. When nature itself, in various different ways, is absolutized, Culture becomes decrepit because all of nature being somehow an aspect of this divine principle, even if you drop the religious language, emerging from this original unity, if everything is at bottom one, how can meaningful differentiation take place in life anywhere? At the biological level, at the ethical level, at the artistic level, the juridical, the moral. How can real differences be grasped and understood and recognized? If everything is at root, one, all individuality structures are broken down. Culture is an impermanent artifice, you see. It's a mysterious fluidity. And in the post-Darwinian world, that is in a world after Charles Darwin, we can no longer speak cogently, or at least we can't speak persuasively about natural law as a moral referent, because at least our pseudo-Christian secularists of past generations did, but we can't because we no longer know what nature is. And maybe I'll just, throw, I'll just tread on a couple of toes here in the United States and suggest that even the American Constitution with its appeal to nature and self-evident ideas is not enough. Natural law is not enough to save America. It has to be Jesus Christ. What is nature after all? Is it God's creation? Is it God's law that governs all things? Or is there some independent realm of reason that can operate and function and bring people to truth independent of the religious root of the human person regenerated in Jesus Christ? state church in Britain can't save Britain. The American Constitution itself, with all the revisionism, will not save America. You can still like me even after this session. You know that, right? A mysterious world, you see, of chaotic forces cannot give objective transcendent law. So all that's left to us in our culture is positive law. That is, laws that are just simply pulled out of the experience of people. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., former Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court and leading legal thinker, argued, he said that, that positive law emerges as a development of the reflective experience of the people. And the question becomes, well, who interprets the reflective experience of the people and turns it into law? 
If it's not God's law anymore, and it's just the reflective experience of the people, who's going to make laws out of that? Well, of course, the answer is a new elite in the courts, cut loose from accountability to God, cut loose from the idea of human beings as God's image bearer. In Canada, an unelected elite in the, in the Supreme Court recently struck down all laws against euthanasia and assisted suicide. Do you know, actually, the pagans of the ancient world were better than us because we don't even believe in the Hippocratic Oath anymore. I mean, they wouldn't. Doctors in the ancient world refused to practice abortion and euthanasia. We're keen on it. We continue the destruction of the human person. And you know, the, it, it was Section 7 of the Canadian Charter which they used to strike down these laws, and Section 7 protects life and liberty. And they use that to strike down laws against euthanasia and assisted suicide. The man who pioneered illegal abortion in Canada, in Canada there is no abortion law at all. You can abort up to term. He performed a live televised abortion on Mother's Day. His name was Morgan Taller. And a few years ago, he was awarded the Order of Canada, which is the highest civilian citation you can get in Canada for his defense of women and liberty. So we're now in the grip of political warfare on the front, a new elite, a new humanistic priesthood, Plato's philosopher kings. They're necessary because we're now in a chaotic world, and chaos is not a workable political philosophy. You know, if you, if you can define everything for yourself, that, that's not a workable political. You can't have a social order like that. So in this radical, autonomous world, humanity needs salvation from all the fatalistic forces threatening to crush us, and increasingly society looks to absolutize the cultural sphere of the state as the agency that should control the threat that man is to himself as an aspect of nature. Because you're just an aspect of nature, and so am I, and we are a threat to ourselves. And so it's to the state that we increasingly delegate the responsibility for salvation. Cradle to grave security. It naturally follows that modern political doctrine rests on a set of beliefs that flatly contradict what God says about humanity. And it's not that in political life we say that evil doesn't exist. Evil needs to be addressed, we're told, but we don't locate evil anymore in the human heart. We don't find its root there. We politicize life by, we, by saying that evil needs to be addressed in the environment. The environment is the source of evil. Human beings are good by nature, we're told. Evil is in the environment, in the spheres like of social order, like the family, the church. It's in things like private property, the structures of inequality that war against the original unity of man in his primitive state. So I was in, a, uh, in London recently at Westminster in a, a committee meeting of the Labour Party. That's the Socialist Party in England, not because I'm one of them. I was a fly on the wall, and nobody managed to swap me while I was there. And I was listening to uh, one of the uh, intellectuals of the party giving a short speech, 
to this committee about why they lost so badly in the election. And he basically said that the problem was that the Labour Party needs to return to a robust conviction of the essential goodness of man. Man is born without sin, and so you change and transform society, culture, by changing the environment, not by dealing with human beings themselves and their moral responsibility and accountability. You just change the environment. And if you can do that, if you can get human beings back to a more primitive state where all of these social constructions of Christian civilization are broken down, then you can create the truly blessed society. So if we abolish marriage and family, no one will feel subject to hierarchy anymore and women and children won't feel subjugated anymore. If we eliminate binogendary norms, no one will feel oppressed by distinctions anymore. If we eliminate income inequality, no one will feel greedy anymore. If we open our borders and embrace Islamists returning from fighting with ISIS and give them a place of work and a place to live, they won't crucify and behead Christians anymore. Because we can perfect our world by magic, by political technique. In this plastic world, there's even the idea today, and it's funded increasingly by large multinationals in, like Google, the man is going to, as the custodian of his own evolution, is going to transcend his own sense of humanity and become post-human or transhuman. Have you heard of transhumanism? Post-humanism? Man will merge with his own technology and he will grab digital immortality from the universe, downloading his consciousness or whatever else it might be. Magical delusions. Ignorance, disease, poverty, guilt, everything can be abolished so long as we abolish all hierarchy, especially God himself. Let me close in my last three minutes with some more positive news. The weapons of our warfare. The illusion that the human ego has the absolute existence of God himself is a very old one. What was the temptation of Satan to our first parents, you will be as God. Knowing or determining for yourself right and wrong, truth from falsehood. And in the process, we've lost ourselves in the abyss. We've taken that which is relative, creative, and we've absolutized it. And we've taken the absolute God and we've tried to relativize him. But we are comprehensible only with in relationship back to God. The human eye, the human person, is nothing, Scripture says, in and of itself. It truly lives only by the defining and powerful word of God. John Calvin understood this when he made absolutely clear that the true knowledge of self is founded on the true knowledge of God in his first book of the Institutes. Right relationship with God is necessary. Love to God. That's the first commandment, remember? Love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if we love God, God's image bearer will also be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. Nowhere in the Christian view can this love lead to the destruction of that image in gender-fluid confusion, the redefinition of creational institutions, the murder of our neighbor in the womb, in age, in sickness, or despair. 
You see, the challenge that we have today and the opportunity now that we have today on the front line is to recover, especially for the Z generation, that is the students right now in university, many of whom have never heard the gospel. They don't even know who Jesus Christ is. We cannot in our culture right now even identify ourselves truly. We do not know anymore what a human person is. We have the opportunity to tell our culture to give the answer to our culture again. Doiverd comes to the heart of the matter. Listen to this. This is brilliant. He says, the question is, what is man? Who is he? Cannot be answered by man himself. However, it has been answered by God's word revelation, who uncovers the religious root and center of human nature in its creation, fall into sin, and redemption by Jesus Christ. Man lost true self-knowledge when he lost true knowledge of God. But all idols of human selfhood, which man in his apostasy has devised, break down when they are confronted with the word of God, which unmasks their vanity and nothingness. It is this word alone which, by its radical grip, can bring about a reformation of our view of man and our view of the temporal world. And it's in possession, you see, of this word this knowledge of God and the human person, that we can actually build true culture. That we can actually build true community. That we have a transcendent reference for life and thought and for all aspects of reality. We must continue to pray for, that tap is significant, those in authority, this is even more significant, And we must serve the cause of Christ, which encompasses the good of our fellow human beings to the best of our ability. We must prophetically witness on the front lines against idolatry in all its varied forms and serve the cause of righteousness and justice. And you will be surprised repeatedly how God works through that. And how people's hearts and lives are turned around in the grip, despite being in the grip of despair. We will not always be loved for this stance. We will be hated by some. But this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. For almost a century, our culture has been progressively pursuing the death of man as man, as God's image bearer. And so we are surrounded, Scripture tells us, by dead men. Dead in trespasses and sins. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, I assure you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And all who hear will live. Jesus Christ is life, that is our confidence, and that is our message. Amen.